Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast. Today, I have Xander Keg and Jason Littlefield, both of whom you've seen here before, but what you don't know is they are working together. And before I give any more introduction, we've got to know what we brought to drink to this conversation. Jason, did you bring anything? I brought my standard. Coffee and water? Black coffee and ice water in a mason jar. <sighs> Okay, Xander. <laughs> well, I've been drinking unsweetened iced tea like a good Southerner most of the day, but I am today drinking for this um, show a uh, lemon summer shandy, which is a beer that has lemonade in it. It's beautiful, very oh. tasty. Oh, that sounds really good. Mm -hmm. I, I'm I'm doing something really special, y'all. I invented this. My husband says he did, but he, he lies. <laughs> it is whipped cream vodka with sun-kissed soda and some half and half and it's a creamsicle oh mm, it's awesome yep so sounds good cheers <laughs> i really wish they had all these wonderfully flavored vodkas when as a teenager i was stealing it from the grocery store I know it tasted you... like rubbing alcohol, and uh -huh. now I can get watermelon and mm -hmm. whipped cream. I, I was born in the wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Ch chocolate vodka? I mean, it, yeah, I know. Me too, me too. Yeah, so, we had schnapps, so, you know. Oh, yeah, schnapps and um, oh, Mad Dog 50-50. That's what, what? That, 2020. Yeah. Mad Dog 2020. <laughs> Mad Dog 2020. See, <laughs> I can't even remember. Because that, I know my cheap wines. <laughs> yeah. That, and, and, oh, Boone Hill. Boone's Farm. Boone's so, Farm. See? But I think that maybe those killed some brain cells, so now I can't remember them. Boone's, Boone's Farm and Mad Dog 2020. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So, Xander, you know, we've introduced you before. You are a award-winning social worker. You have your Xander Arcade Consulting. Uh, you're now working with Jason Littlefield. And Jason, we've introduced before. Jason was a former social and emotional coach at a public school and now has his own Empower Pathways, Empower Education. And you guys have come together. And the, what I understand, you'll have to explain it to me, is that you guys have come together around the idea of belonging. Mm -hmm. And so I really want to know what you guys, what are you up to? What are you guys doing together? <laughs> <laughs> We're in uh, cahoots. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're, we're working to make the world uh, a better place. Uh, but I, I'll kind of I'll kind of start off and then I'm, I'll pass the torch to, to Xander as well. But essentially what Empowered Pathways is looking to do this year is through, you know, professional learning and coaching in the K-12 system, higher ed and corporate training is to address what is happening within our culture uh, what <clears throat> the the impact and I like to use uh, Wesley Yang's expression of successor ideology mm -hmm. I feel that really sums up what is ha what is happening within the culture uh, can you can you can you flesh that out <laughs> for people who might not have heard or that term before yeah so that just kind of encompasses uh, you know the the 
world of intersectionality, identity politics, critical social justice, just all of that that's within our culture, uh, the orthodox diversity, equity, and inclusion movement that's taken place. So really the large scale cultural movement is, and I, you know, it's called successor ideology is because it's a, it's a new framework for, I guess, making sense of the world. And so, you know, we're explaining what's happening there, the impact that the successor ideology is having on A, the individual and B, society, including relationships. And, you know, Eric and I, we talked about, so Eric Smith is also uh, part of part of our team. And last time he and I really kind of uh, fleshed out some of our, our solutions and what we are proposing. Uh, so what what Xander and I will be working towards is really talking about a sense of belonging, developing a professional learning series around uh, belonging and tolerance and also reconciliation with that really focus on reconciliation because the successor ideology has done a lot of damage to working groups, to communities, uh, congregations. It's caused a a permanent rift and damage and it's harmed a lot of relationships. So we're looking to, you know, address what's happening in the world. Here's another way of operating. And then, you know, we also want to help reconcile and repair any harm and damage that's been done within a community for the successor ideology. And that sense of belonging, one reason why we're taking it back to belonging is that's one of our ultimate human drives. Uh, <clears throat> one of the ultimate drives is meaning making of our world. We're constantly trying to make meaning of our world. We're just primitively driven that way. And then also we want to feel like we belong in this world. And one impact that the successor ideology is having is it is removing our sense of well-being and our, our way of belonging in the world. So it's ripping us apart that way. And I'm gonna I'm gonna drink uh, I'm gonna float back and forth between coffee and water. <laughs> And let Xander uh, chime in now. Yeah, I've got questions. So Xander, uh, if you'll elaborate on that, and then I'll I'll hit you guys with some questions. Well, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, Jason. Uh, you know, primarily comes from the education sector, and I'm mostly coming from corporate or um, healthcare, you know, settings. And so, uh, belonging is um, something that you hear a lot now from HR departments. Right. Mm -hmm. So within within the business world, belonging is something um, I read recently that they were using belonging as a term to mean that you feel safe and welcomed and celebrated in the workplace. And it's like, well, I mean, ultimately, wouldn't that be really wonderful? But that's also a lot to ask. Right. Because the, the truest sense of the definition of belonging in that context would be that we feel acceptance as a member. Right. Uh, a member of the staff, a member of the congregation, a member of the temple, a member of the neighborhood, right? We feel acceptance in that way. Uh, and so, you know, how do we how do we accomplish that, right? That That's something that we could, you know, 
quote unquote, unpack, you know, um, but this idea of some people don't feel as if they belong. And that's an internal um, issue that they're dealing with. Uh, maybe it's trauma based, right? I'm a clinician. So maybe it's trauma based. Maybe it's maybe it's a cognitive distortion, right? There's a negative thought or belief that people have versus are people actually keeping them from being a member? Or are they just not uh, aspiring towards membership because they think they won't be welcome? So we have to really look at it from many different points of view, in my opinion, uh, to really get to an understanding of what is belonging? How does one establish it? How does one feel it? How is it cultivated? These are all very um, different, you know, angles to look at, and they're they're complex. So it's not that simple to just, you know, create a belonging culture. It's like, oh well, how do we do that? What does it look like? How do we how do we know that everybody feels like they belong? And do we really mean everybody? You know. Well, let me interrupt for just a second. Aren't, isn't I think one of you might have told me, um, isn't now you know DEI diversity, equity, inclusion? Isn't it DEIB? Isn't it belonging added to that? It can't. Uh, in a lot of ways, in a in a lot of places, they mm -hmm. are adding belonging in, <clears throat> and they're not even saying DEI anymore. So they're the language is evolving very rapidly. DEI I, in some cases oh, is almost not passe, but it's, it's not cutting edge, you know? Okay. I, I've started to see uh, belonging popping up, but the, the thing is, and then I'm going to pass it back to Xander because this is one of the first, in one of our initial conversations, something that, that I knew Xander like got like that was that be belonging in, in its truest and most essence cannot exist in a world, in a society, in a working environment that operates on repressive tolerance. And that repressive tolerance is the barrier to belonging. So also really, uh, to use the word unpack, <laughs> To unpack that, uh, that's something else that we do. And whenever, I, I know, uh, Jen, you have some some questions, but <clears throat> I definitely, I'm going to let Xander really take that repressive tolerance uh, baton and just kind of get into what a barrier to belonging is. And, and people that are operating off of the orthodox diversity, equity, and inclusion <clears throat> true belonging cannot exist under that framework because that framework promotes repressive tolerance and repressive tolerance is a rejection of human dignity. And it's also a, a rejection of, of belonging and there's no way to have inclusion with that idea either. So that's, that's an idea that is so strong in the ethos that it is a barrier to true belonging and true human connection. And that's one of the barriers uh, that Xander and I hope, hope to really break down. So, okay, before Xander, I want you to talk about repressive tolerance. Before we do, I just wanna make sure that I understand. So are you saying that um, DEI has been, now the new language is belonging. So what was DEI now is being called belonging. So you would be going to 
belonging training or, or uh, is that as a are they I synonymous? Know, I I don't know if it's synonymous. I just know that I'm starting to see that word uh, belonging pop up uh, and pop up alongside of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay, so in in mainstream, when you hear belonging, it typically is at least somewhat aligned with what we know of what was been called diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes. Okay. I would almost think of it as <clears throat> it's it's an addendum to, or it's uh, right. It's like because they're working on. I think belonging is the goal of doing diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion work. Okay. But I think I think the goal of that work um, is seen as ending up with a with a a culture of belonging, so that everybody feels as if they belong in the job at the school in the place of worship, in the neighborhood, in the, you know, the, in the, the organization. Tools, if the tools that you're using are purposed for that, but what's happening in these trainings and in this idea is that the tools that are being used aren't purposed for true belonging. I think what can happen is people can turn it into, we, Certain groups of people have felt left out, pushed aside, marginalized. And so we're going to bring them in. And we don't care if you feel uncomfortable. We don't really care if you feel like you belong anymore. So it's, it's not real belonging. It's, it's, it's akin to this repressive tolerance idea, which um, most people have never heard of. And most people don't really understand. Um, and because this is a concept that was... Uh, initially put forward in a book called A Critique of Peer Tolerance in 1965 in an essay, the title being Repressive Tolerance. Um, and it was um, written by Herbert Marcuse or Marcuse. I, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. He's a German-American philosopher and he was associated with the Frankfurt School. Uh, and so if people are unfamiliar, these are things they can go look up. Repressive tolerance, uh, Herbert Marcuse, M-A-R-C-U-S-E, and the Frankfurt School, right? And it, they put forward different critical theories. And so this idea of repressive tolerance is that um, you, it, it, the way it was defined in this essay in the book, Critical Peer Tolerance, is that it's the withdrawal of toleration of speech and assembly from groups and movements. Well, which groups of movements? Well, the ones that we, that they deemed intolerant, right? So that's, that's how it works. It's like this idea of pure tolerance um, of, of even what the Southern Poverty Law Center, right, when they were advancing tolerance, um, the idea is that there's a limit to tolerance. So if, if there's a group of people who say, you know what, I find what you're saying intolerant, and I'm not going to tolerate that, and therefore I'm going to suppress what I deem to be intolerant. That's repressive tolerance, and it's utilized as a tool um, to further um, a movement um, without any um, anybody sort of coming in and calling calling attention to it, like, hey, wait a minute, that's race essentialism, or hey, wait a minute, you know, that's a that's a form of of oppression or marginalization that targets a group of people that are now seen as not um, deserving of having anybody point that out. Yeah, so repressive tolerance, it's 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 tricky. 
Um, and it's not something that, it's just not a, an idea that I think a lot of people know about and can fully understand um, how it works. And how it works is if somebody is saying something that a group of people who are championing a particular um, affinity group right, and they hear from another group something that they don't like, they'll cancel it. That's where cancel culture comes from. Cancel culture is repressive tolerance in work at work, right? It's like, we don't want that speaker on campus because they say things that we don't like. And so, well, that's freedom of speech. And they'll say, that's not freedom of speech. That's hate speech. Well, there's no literal thing called hate speech in law. It just means we don't like what that person's saying. So we're going to repress it. We're going to repress them, their ideas, and their ability to express those ideas. Repressive tolerance. And before, even before things <clears throat> escalate to the point of cancel culture, repressive tolerance also shows up in the, there's a, there's a great unwillingness of professionals to be able to sit down and engage in, in ideas. Uh, the unwillingness of people that firmly believe in the successor ideology and people that are uh, kind of trenched in, you know, classical liberalism that's dominated Western society for the past 300 years, there's an unwillingness uh, of even exchange of ideas. And no, you can't. Like, you can't, like good, right? It's like good faith you can't debate. Right. Yeah. You can't have a debate or discuss. You or just can't a have discussion. discussion. But yeah. but you know, debate as well. I know that D'Angelo and Kendi, you know, Coleman Hughes and others have really tried to say, hey, let's have some public discussion about these two ideas. And that never happens. And that's you know, repressive tolerance is part of that. Yeah, because it's basically saying you have no right to have your opinion heard by the people. It is so, it is so intolerant. It is so abhorrent that nobody should have to hear it. Therefore, I'm not gonna create an environment or an opportunity for you to espouse your views so that my audience can hear it. So, okay, laying it out for, for our listeners, can you just give an example of what that would look like in real life? I mean, it can be a makeup as made up example, or if you've had an example that you guys have experienced personally, but what does that like look like playing out in real life? What would be in a, in something that would give us that imagery? Uh, <clears throat> I, I can say a couple of years ago, I went to uh, some professionals in my field saying that, because I, I noticed that the the trainings and the workshops that I that I was attending were rooted in uh, Marxist philosophy. The philosophical framework is actually um, Marxism. And after <clears throat> a few years of attending these trainings and the, just the same themes repeated and nothing productive. Uh, as far as like improving human potential and really getting reading the authors and getting into the work, I realized like, oh, it really is. So I tried to have conversations with colleagues about, hey, I, I really we really need to examine examine our tools. Uh, we need to look at at 
what we're promoting, what what the what the whole system is promoting. And I was essentially like shunned, uh, put pushed aside and not not engaged with. And also, I, I really I am I'm, I'm I'm promoting uh, human dignity is one of the baselines ideas that I'm trying to promote. Uh, and that idea has met, a, has met a lot of resistance and people are, are triggered and alerted and sent into high active emotional states when confronted with a, the notion of human dignity, uh, when confronted with that, if we can see each other as we see ourselves, we're less likely to do harm. And this notion that we do have different cultures, we do have, there are differences, but we also have a shared humanity. We have a shared history as, as a species, and we are in this moment right now where we are planning for a shared future. So well, those have... ideas that I just went through are really alerting to a growing number of people and those growing number of people are all ones that believe in the successor ideology and the successor ideology operates uh, repressive tolerance is one of its is one of its tools and one of its modus operandi i've got to ask like i don't understand how the word human dignity can be triggering what 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 is it about human dig dignity that is means something else? I mean, how is it being interpreted that it in in the negative? I feel it all depends on what happened to your software. You know what? Obviously, those people that believe that and feel that way, they have put different things into their into their brains. Uh, they've read different people. They've had different things explained to them. That's the all. <clears throat> I don't know what it is because conversations never happened. But for people to have such a strong reaction against that, their their information system receives something that rejects it. And I don't it, know what that is. It might be. I mean, most mostly when people think of or hear about Marxism, they think of economics, right? They think of class divisions between the haves, right, the bourgeoisie, the have-nots, the proletariats. And I think what's what's transpired over the, you know, in more modern times is what some people might call like a neo-Marxism or a cultural Marxism, where instead of the rich against the poor, it's, you know, more like the, the BIPOC versus the white, right? Black indigenous people of color versus white or cisgender versus transgender or men versus women or able-bodied versus the, the people with disabilities, right? Everything, uh, it, it's like, instead of pitting the classes against each other, that didn't work in the United States. That's what the Frankfurt School um, realized is you can't pit you can't pit the bourgeois against the proletariat in the United States because there's a strong middle class. It definitely was in the 40s and 50s when they were trying to get this idea, you know, going here. So then they they started looking at at the social classes 
versus the economic classes. And they, they found that that was really ripe territory for, for these divisions. And so if you can break people down into people of color versus white people and cisgender people and transgender people, well, well, what do you mean then when you talk about the human being, right? If, if, you, if, if we're broken down by races and ethnicities, then you can't say human race anymore, right? So maybe human dignity, maybe that's touching on this, this pushback against talking about the human being. No, yeah. we're, I'm not a human being. I'm a transgender, Hispanic, you know, man, blah, blah, blah. It, I have to be broken down. I'm not just, I'm not just a human being. I'm, I'm a particular I'm a particular kind of human being with all of my unique intersections. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what I'm hearing, and let me make sure that I heard you right. One of the problems with human dignity, where it might be upsetting to people, is because it touches on, and I've talked about this lately, it touches on individualism. And individualism has kind of become almost a, you know, a right wing <laughs> word, a bad word. And did, did I understand that right? You can't have human no. dignity because human dignity entails that you as a person, as a singular entity is deserving well, of it. I mean, yes, but no, if you think about like intersectionality, how can it not be individualistic, right? Like, if, if each individual has ha, is is made up of their own unique intersections, that's also individualistic. But what what happens is they take it out of the individual and say like, well, which one of those intersections, which one of those affinity or affiliated groupings that you belong to, like which one is the most oppressed, and so you join that group versus recognizing like, oh, I'm a, I'm a unique individual because I'm made up of a different race and ethnicity and class and religion and social, and, you know, social standing and education level and ability status. Like it, in my view, that, that's all individualism, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I hear but it's you. not used that way. It's, it's, not, it, it's not utilized or it's not treated as an individualistic or, um, viewpoint. I don't understand how, but it gets broadened out to the affinity group, to the social class. And another reason why that dignity model could be rejected is if that really becomes, if that is the lens, then it, it completely dissolves power. If we are truly to able honor dignity, then it, it's it's the ultimate equalizer. It 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 erodes power. It erodes ego. It increases our ability to help each other when we see each other in need. It completely crushes the narrative because it no longer people will no longer be in conflict with each other. People will no longer clamor for power clamor for glory, try to elevate themselves above others by clinging to an intersectionality label. Because that's one of the things now is with, if, with this narrative, you can find one of these groups and ascend 
in status and power. And dignity knocks the legs out of that stool. Okay, that's really fascinating. Um, I'm taking Can I add one more piece yes, to that? Yes, please. Right, if you, if you think of like the, the denotative, um, de you know, the definition of dignity, like in a, in a dictionary kind of way, right? It's, it's, um, it meaning it's, it's a sense of um, being valued and respected, right? As a person. Mm -hmm. um, and so you treat people with dignity. You want people to treat you with dignity as a social worker, treating people with dignity is, is foundational to our code of ethics. Um, I think what happens is I think there are, I think there's an effort on some individuals or some groups um, to deny dignity to some people while demanding it of other people because it's sort of like you've had too much dignity or something. It's like you don't deserve dignity because you and your people historically have been horrible or something like that. And so it's it's a denial, right? So I, I think we're just touching on we're just touching on uh, people. It's, I think part of it also is this redefining of terms that happens, right? It's like, it doesn't matter what a dictionary says anymore because some group is going to say, well, that's not what that word means anymore. And it's like, well, who decided that? You know, <laughs> um, since when? Yesterday, right? And so if dignity means, you know, if dignity is an inherent value, something that as a social worker, I'm supposed to recognize and acknowledge and extend my clients and patients. Well, is that only some of my clients and patients? Is that all of them? Mm. Is that, you know, like, I don't know how to draw the line on dignity. Am I supposed to draw a line on dignity? You guys are blowing my mind. Okay, I, I wanna make sure again, I'm repeating what you're saying to make sure I understand it. Both of you guys, I mean, dignity, because it, it's, it's individual, everyone has dignity, it dissolves power and you find power in groups. Did I get that? Did I make that connection right? And so these identities, these group identities that we have are what's giving us power and therefore dignity is a threat because it might actually make everyone equal. I think that's a good <laughs> summation. Isn't that yeah. the, oh my God, the, the fact that we're, we're all fighting for equality and something that might actually make some people equal is now something that is a, a threat because of power. Well, because equality is not the goal of the of the person who is putting forward a repressive tolerance point of view. It's equity, not equality. So equality is what a classical liberal, right, it, it is is um is wanting to to espouse and live and 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 see put forward the idea of equality but in in nowadays it's equity which is different right because equality is um having access to opportunities um in in as fair a way as possible equity is making sure that we all have the same outcomes and I and see that that's not going to work. That that means that means if you're in track and field, the slowest runners get to start ahead of you. Yeah. And so where we see that in our culture, equal outcomes is 
an idea that they are pushing forward. So this idea of equal outcomes of all students, equal outcomes of all people, that, that idea is currently being pushed through the culture. Now, we in order the the three of us have three very different lives. And in order for make us all all of our outcomes the same, you're going to have to limit us. You're going to have to limit us creatively. You're going to have to limit us. Like really, in order to do equal outcomes, you have to have tyranny. There is no other way except for tyranny to enforce and ensure equal outcomes because it's equal outcomes among everybody and since this i since the successor ideology is not just a united states thing it's throughout through it it's it's a, a worldwide phenomenon so i mean just think in, in just think about it in higher education right the the opportunity to get accepted into a doctorate program right that's that's not easy to do um and then to write a dissertation that's, I mean, my understanding, I only have three master's degrees. I never went that next step on, right? My understanding is that the, the process by which a person goes through writing a dissertation, it, can, can, it makes you or breaks you. I've heard it's just treacherous. So let's think about like how difficult, how arduous how that process is. And some people are going to be like, yeah, you've got to go through that arduous process. Other people... What are they going to do? They're going to be assigned a team of 10 people who help them write their doctor, their, their dissertation. Right. It's like, that's, it's like, so that everybody gets a doctorate, you know? And so some people are going to need all this extra help, but it's like, well, then it devalues a doctorate. And a way you could do that is you just do away with doctorates. Well, that's true too. Yeah. So, okay. I was going to ask you something on the Marxist, but I think, I think I, I think I, from what you guys said, I now understand, but let me spell it out for you. You were talking about how uh, a lot of what's being taught is Marxist philosophy. And I was going to ask you about that, but I think you answered it in the equal outcomes, right? So when I understand Marxism and as a you know China scholar, what I've seen happen in China with uh, the communist revolution there is it was that attempt to forcefully create these equal outcomes. Is that when, when, when we're talking about equal, equal outcomes, is that what you are talking about when you say Marxist philosophy? Yeah, okay. That, and this notion that there, there is no individual, each human mm -hmm. is either an oppressor or an oppressed. So, like that's I mean, I wanna be clear, I'm not a Marxist scholar. I'm not an expert in Marxism. Um, it's just, you know, I went to college in the 90s. And so that, you know, there was a lot of postmodernism in the, in the, you know, teachings at that point in time. So I learned it years and years ago. Um, and in some ways, I think I just accepted it as truth because it was being put forward to me as truth. And um, it, took, it took years and years and years for me to kind of come to my senses and realize, wait a minute, a lot of these theories I learned in the classroom don't really apply in the real world. And it started when I went through my gender transition and realized that living as a man wasn't gonna be like the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> like I thought based on what I was taught, you know? 
I'm um, laughing right now because, you know, I went to school in the 90s too, and I don't remember being taught this postmodernism. And I wonder if it was the Mad Dog 2020. <laughs> Just throwing that one out there. Um, well, I think it depends on your major too. I think, yeah, yeah. you know, I was a social science major. I think that makes yeah. a difference. I, I had a, I, w I took a lot of uh, sociologies and histories and political mm, science. Okay. It was, it was kind of presented to me as, you know, this is, this is what we do. So I had the exact opposite experience because studying China, all we did was study the cultural revolution and the Chinese revolution. And so much of what I see now, and I'm reading Kenny Shu's book now, The Inconvenient Min Minority. And he's talking, you know, in the first few chapters, he's talking about China and he's talking about this, you know, um, equal outcomes and the destruction that that wrought. And so when you started talking about Marxist philosophy and then put out this, you know, equal outcomes, that's when it kind of came together for me. But I've got another question around that. So you had mentioned, uh, you know, before when we were talking about Marxism, Xander, you were talking about this, that we were, we were really talking about class. And now we've expanded it to so many other binaries or so many other identities. Do you think that one of the attractions to this Marxist philosophy perhaps is the inequalities of, of class where we had a strong middle class, like you said, 40s, 50s, we had a great strong middle class and that started to get pulled apart where we've got more division in, in terms of class. Is it possible that Marxist philosophy in some ways that gave it a space to bubble up? Oh, absolutely. I think they I think they took full advantage of recognizing that there were there were inequities in 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 all different areas that had to do with um, people's access. Right. Women's access to the working world and and, you know, black people's access to whatever. Right. And depending on where they were living and, and you know, as a as a Hispanic person, like has Hispanic people and Asian peoples. Right. Like there are there have been inequities. I, I don't think anybody's saying there hasn't been. Um, interestingly enough, I, what I find what I what I think can happen is we can be using the same words or or we can be have a similar goal, because if you think about it, going from a from a class based system of dividing people up to a cultural or social way of doing it ultimately what it looked like it was meaning to do is create belonging right it's like we're going to have the gay people over here and the women over here and the black people over here and the and the you know native american or indigenous peoples over here so that they can be part they can be part of their group they can learn their history that's right that's when all these like chicano studies and african american studies and women's studies it's like let's let's help them create a sense of belonging to their affinity group to their racial group to their ethnic group um and so it, it like I don't begrudge an interest in uh, having a sense of belonging. It's just that when when it gets to the point where I strongly affiliate and define myself by and feel belonging in this one group, um, and then it turns itself towards the other groups and says, "Cause you don't accept me, you don't agree with me, you don't welcome me." I don't like you. You're evil. You know what I mean? Like that's when it becomes um, uh, destructive. And like, when it becomes gameable. 
Like, sure. Yeah. You can you can game this system. You know, if there are aspects of my identity that I can change to get power. But if I outwardly express and say I'm this or I believe this, then I can not only get power, but I can also be really rude to other people. It gives me if if I align myself with, uh, you know, looking at repressive tolerance, because that kind of justifies and sanctifies uh, treating people in undignified ways. So, I mean. Yeah, it's like there there are there are members of my community, right, as a trans man, that I can I feel like I can just be myself around them. I can relax, I can have just a regular conversation. I don't have to be careful with what words I use. It's like the 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 sense of belonging, the importance of it, it can't be missed, right? We a sense of belonging is, but it's 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 when it turns on the others. It's because like you're also a transphobe, right, Xander? Well, yeah, <laughs> I've been called transphobic. You know, I mean, so that's a <laughs> that's another that's another fallacy. That that's another that's another. So it kind of shows that the, that this whole thing is absurd and its purpose for destruction, and that's all that's all it is. I, I heard you say that there will always be inequities. Uh, you know, and there all there always has been. And one of the things that really caught my attention was the research on firstborn children. Uh, usually, firstborn children end up being higher earning, higher wage earners than their siblings. The percentage of firstborn that are CEOs and that are in leadership positions in their careers is disproportionate to second and third siblings. And these are people that share the same DNA as other human beings, were raised in the same in household environment, and those people still have different outcomes in life. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's only children as well, right? Mm -hmm. And but what's really interesting is that, you know, just thinking about it from the clinical perspective, if you have three siblings that are all raised by the same parents in the same home, they really had three very different experiences. Um, and so because because mm -hmm. the parents are are changing and shifting and becoming more aware of things. And and so like my wife, her and her sister are seven years apart. They were raised by the same parents not literally in the same physical house, but but when my wife was growing up, her parents were graduate students. When her sister was growing up, her parents were college professors. That's a very different upbringing. And so they have very different, you know, views of the world and very different experiences in the world. And so it's, it, there will, it's like, but are they inequities or are they just differences? It's like, I know there was a, I don't know if it was a study, but I think in one of Malcolm Gladwell's books, I think, or maybe Freakonomics, one of those books where they I were talking about, they were talking about how they were, they were noticing that all of the like all-star players on a particular sporting team um, were all born in like, 
the second half of whatever time of the year mm-hmm. that they pick people for the team. And it's like, yeah, they're all 12 year olds, but some are like a month away from being 13 and some turned 12 a month ago. And there's a big difference in the, in the musculature, in the, in the maturity, in the height um, of, of, of those like 10 or 11 months when you're a kid. And so you've got all of these extraordinarily proficient, you know, I don't remember who was soccer or basketball. And it, she was noticing, I think it was his wife was noticing that they were all born in like this one or two month period of time, which makes them the oldest on the team that they were with growing up, right? These teams that they were playing when they were kids. They were always ahead because they were always taller or faster or stronger. <laughs> that is Gladwell. Yeah, that's a great. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so I've got a, a, another question for you guys. Uh, when we talk about this belonging and we see all the troubles with it and how we're talking about it today, I mean, what are you guys doing differently? How do we do belonging well? You can create a sense of belonging around balance values you know shared values what what are you know shared personal values what are the values and mission of your organization uh, what are issues and what what are things that are important to you what do you want the future to look like xander get, get yeah. it. i'm gonna abruptly pass the baton but those are you know, <laughs> those are after we really break down what what's happening and then some of those ideas and then uh xander's technical side and and everything else well i i mean i like what you just said jason about um because when i do my conflict management training for a large you know federal health care system I talk to them about how, you know, we all have different lives and we've all had different experiences and we, we all come to the understanding of things very differently. And yet we've been hired to be part of a system where the goal is um, excellent patient care. And so when we're having conflicts with people on our work team or in our workplace, it's always helpful for somebody to come in and remind everybody what the common goal and purpose is. Excellent patient care. Um, you know, you know, 365 days in a row without an injury on the job, like whatever it is, like to constantly bring it back to that, you know, developing new products for to take to market, you know, every month or it's like keeping people focused. Um, on those those larger right the meta dreams the meta narratives the meta um, um, goals and missions and values of the organization because almost every organization has a mission statement mm-hmm. they have a vision statement they have core values um, and so when you bring in employees from across all these different social and ethnic and racial and all these other different kinds of affiliations and affinities when you bring them together in a corporation they can be realigned. It's like, you know, as a veteran, when I served in the Coast Guard, right, you go into the military, they don't let everybody be an individual in that sense. You're there. You're on a mission. You have a mission. Mm. And there's a goal. And each branch of the military is completely different from the others. And people self-select into. <clears throat> so we're going to self-select into an employer that, uh, that has a mission, a vision, 
you know, a purpose that we can get behind. Why, why would we expect that we would go take a job somewhere and try and completely change the mission, the vision, and the purpose? And that's kind of what's happening is there's like a, there's a deconstruction, right, of, of, a, of, a, of a, a national mission, vision, and goal and purpose, right? Like it'll be, it'll be denigrated, right, as being nationalistic or U.S. centric, but we are a nation and we are citizens of a nation. And so we have like, you know, the American dream. We do have these grander visions and ideals and purposes. How can we make it so that more people feel part of that versus, versus demonizing the American dream? What let's, how can we make it more available? How can we make it, how can we make it so that people can see themselves in that dream? How can we reform? And that's that's the key difference between, uh, you know, classical liberalism and successor ideology is that people in that classical liberal framework want to discuss, want to hash it out and and make things better and want to want to build. The other camp is just in a constant destruction mode. Well, yeah. and we need it, right? We need we need everybody's input because if we don't, then we're going to fall into the trap of groupthink. And when we fall into the trap of groupthink, um, that can be disastrous. It can be completely destabilizing for the individual. It can be disastrous, you know, for for the company. Uh, we don't want groupthink, and we're going to get into more and more groupthink if people don't feel safe bringing up a counter idea uh, from whatever side it is left right center or all of these things should be able to be expressed even if the idea is i i like the yellow one and not the blue one you know just to be able to to say and express that counter counter thought but ideally i think in a liberal society we want people of all backgrounds of all skill levels of all interest of all viewpoints to develop themselves to their fullest potential and then come together in the working place with all of those skill sets to really solve the complex issues that need to be solved if we can value every single one of those lives when we come together and if we can get along when we do, then we can, and we know that we're reformers and builders, then we can use those institutions and environments to begin building up and rather than the destruction mode that we're in. You know, I find that fascinating, but I'm interested in how it goes because you recently, Coinbase, came out and they said, okay, we're not doing this politics stuff. We're not doing this identity stuff. You know, we're here to work. We've got this corporate culture, what you guys are talking about. And I mean, they were slammed, they you were. know, they were slammed. And so there is this, it was uh, crazy. Now that I'm understanding what you guys are talking about more that our corporations have turned into their own identity groups. And if you, if you even stray from that, like a Coinbase, I mean, they're still doing fine, right? Okay, so they, you know, they're they, <laughs> but when that came out that they were like, stop this, we're, this is not, we're, we're going to go on values of who we are, holy crap, like the Twitter sphere exploded. We need more, we need more 
Coinbase's. And I'm not just mm. saying that because Empowered Pathways has a wallet set up through Coinbase. <laughs> Disclaimer. <laughs> Disclaimer. Uh, but we really need more people stepping up and saying that we're going to work. Uh, since I've really come out as strongly supporting Western civilization and like, hey, I don't think we need to burn down the ground. I've I've met the most diverse group of people that I have ever encountered. Uh, so it's interesting to see that that's where real diversity is whenever we get to the point of valuing the individual and allowing for that's that's where we ideally I think that's where everybody would want to get to but the successor ideology is putting structures and things in place that are preventing that not just preventing that now but preventing future generations of human beings from experiencing what we're what we got to experience I mean it's you know if I dial in just to me my personal experience well I just turned 55 I never thought I'd live to be this old, right? I shouldn't be, in all intents and purposes, people, uh, I shouldn't be alive, nor should I be as successful as I am. And why is that? Well, because supposedly I shouldn't be because I'm Hispanic and I'm transgender. I don't say, I'm just using that for this. I don't typically use that word, but for the purpose of the podcast, I'll use it. Like those things should have been major barriers for me. I was also a group home kid and I was in special education. I dropped out of high school. The teachers had very, very low expectations of me. And I ultimately dropped out of school when I was, um, I stopped going to school in the eighth grade and then I was institutionalized and through the group homes and I was forced to do schooling, but I wasn't in public school. I was in some sort of like special school. Um, and so, and then I dropped out of high school and then I went into the military after I got my GED and it's like, supposedly all for all these reasons, it, nobody expected that I would go to college, that I would become, you know, a professional and not only did I become a professional, but then I became, uh, the, like, uh, uh, the highest award I could get in my profession Right. So it's like I have superseded my own expectations, the expectations of my family, the expectations of society. And how did I do that? Like, how was I able to do that? It's like, well, I think it's, you know, dogged determinism. I think I have a personality that is just oriented towards I'm rebellious right? Um, I got a little bit of punk rock in me. I dressed like, I dressed like a yuppie, but I've got the, I've got the attitude of a punker, of a punk rocker, right? It's like, I, so there's something about, you know, my father used to always say to me, you use, you use your shortcoming, so to speak, as a ladder, not a crutch. So mm -hmm. if somebody wants to give you a scholarship because you're Mexican, take it but don't use it as a way to get out of doing things, mm -hmm. right? So I was raised, you know, by a father who, you know, came to this country as a young boy, went through the school system in Texas and Brownsville, and then joined the U.S. Marine Corps and became an engineer without a degree. I mean, that's a very difficult thing to do, 
um, especially in this day and age. So it was probably even more difficult to do it back when he did it. So I, I, there's a certain gumption and grit and perseverance that I have. I don't know where that came from, right? Is it innate? Is it socialized? I don't know, but I'm so very happy. I'm so grateful that I have that because I see people in my own community who are, um, they're just suffering under the weight of these low expectations because they believe it themselves. They believe it. They believe that the world is out to get them. They believe, you know, they, they personalize and catastrophize, to use clinical terminology again, the what's happening around them. Even if it's not happening to them directly, they expect that it will and assume that it is. And then, I mean, that's just so damaging to the psyche. It really, really is. And it, people live in a perpetual state of anxiety and depression and weariness, hopelessness, helplessness. That, that is no way to live. And it, it can't all be because the world is against me. Right? And Sandra, I want to hop on right, right now. So that is the purpose of this movement is to break the individual. The, the, per, the philosophical route is to break the individual in hopes of utopia. And everything that you just described that is happening to people, uh, the depression, the anxiety, the addiction, all of those things, that's a, those are examples of the social emotional impact mm -hmm. that the movement mm -hmm. is having on us. Mm -hmm. So yeah. once we address what's happening then and people can agree that you know what we're ready to start building up then we can incorporate and do a lot of the metacognition training the mindfulness and really get into what do we need to do here's what we can do to cultivate the individual here are some three pathways of practice here here are ways to interrupt thoughts and mindsets of fear and judgment and replace those with inquiry and compassion there here are some so those are all the things that we are hoping you know to to provide as well but what you just said really registered with me because you listed the real effects and impact that we see in our world that the movement is having on the individual because it was purposed to erode the individual and it appears to be working on, on a societal level. And I just don't want to see that passed on to a younger generation. I mean, I, I know what it feels like to be put into a system and broken down, right? That's yeah. what the military does, but it puts you back together stronger as a group, as a, as a force, as a, right. As a citizen, as a, as a military branch, right. It puts you back together. I don't think they have any sense of putting people back together. They break them down mm -hmm. and then they say, everybody's out to get you. Good luck. Mm -hmm. So that, that leads me to my last question for you guys. That's perfect because you guys were, we're talking about belonging. We're talking about tolerance. And then you guys mentioned reconciliation, reconciliation. Yeah. yeah. So how do we get to the reconciliation where we, I think you're right. We've left people broken down. The suicide rates are off the charts. I mean, granted, we had COVID, but even before pre-COVID, the suicide rates for young people were have been off the charts and growing. Well, and substance abuse. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, cutting. Mm, mm -hmm. So how do we reconcile? Well, I think what we have to first do is 
we have to recapture reconciliation from the uh, cultural Marxists, right? Because they've they've turned this reconciliation, this idea of reconciliation into a kangaroo court. They're like, we're going to call you in. And what that means is we want you to present yourself to mm-hmm. a room where there's going to be some people who are going to tell you all the ways in which you have failed us and you're going to sit and listen and then we're going to come up with a plan for how you're you're going to remedy right how you're going to remedy these harms that you've caused and the only reason i know that is because i've been invited very 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 nicely i've been invited to some reconciliation sessions i've been called in by members of my of my the larger trans community of which i refuse to go because i know true reconciliation i have a master's in conflict analysis and resolution i took a semester-long course in reconciliation i understand it from that perspective i never lived in south africa or other nations where they actually rolled out but i know truth and reconciliation it's not just reconciliation it's truth and reconciliation and the charges that are brought against people in these call-in kangaroo courts is not based in truth Mm -hmm. and there's no redemption and there's no forgiveness it's all just you're a bad person or you've done really bad things and we want you to stop it and that is not true reconciliation reconciliation is when people can come together they can speak their truth about this is how what you said or did impacted me right you see it in like victim offender mediation which i've done i've done in practice right it's like people come together and say hey you know when you vandalized my house i felt i was feeling terrified and um, betrayed and and the person who did the vandalizing it has to listen. How did that what I did impact that other person, right? And then the other person gets to hear like the really crappy life, most likely that person who did the vandalism lived. And then they figure out what what is the restoration, right? What they come together with a path towards restoration, right? And so the. That's that's true. That's a true reconciliation process. And that's not what how most people are using it these days. Mm-hmm. They're not talking about um, about the truth component and they're not talking about how we come together to restore, to restore the relationship to between people between, in the neighborhood, wherever it is. Because without without trust an organization is not going to be able to work towards its mission. A school is not going to be, you know, with, without that relational trust, whatever, whatever the goal or the objective is, it's not going to be achieved. Well, and it's like it, and that's tantamount, right? It's like, if you go to like a website, uh, the great place to, it's like great place to work, you know, they rank companies and then they put them on, I don't know, Forbes or fortune or something. What do they always come up with? time and time and time again. What, what, are the, what is one of the most critical pieces, components of what makes a, a, a workplace great? Trust. Trust, that's it. And so it, it's, it's, it's everything. And right? if your colleagues are, and if you have oppressors in your community, then there is no trust. So, so if you've actively broken down trust, by the way we've dealt with belonging, would you say? Yes. In some in some cases, yes. Yeah, absolutely. 
because because the like when you said a, a few minutes ago, you said something about how uh, Twitter went crazy when Coinbase made its public statement. It's like my first in, my first reaction to that is who cares? Who cares what Twitter says? Right. But people do care. It's like how many people was that? Was it a thousand? Maybe less. It's not that many people, but they're very loud and they're very mean. Mm. And so it it people get afraid. They're like, oh, I don't want my shareholders to get mad or I don't want my family to get mad or I don't want people to think I'm a bad person. So they they have they react instead of respond. What they should do mm-hmm. is um, with Scott Adams. I like Scott Adams, the, the, the creator of Dilbert. He has this, um, I think it's called like the 48 hour rule where when some, something outlandish is said in the media, like so-and-so is a racist and they lied sort of like, like when Roseanne Barr, when, you know, um, and he said, he's got this rule. I think it's 48 hours where he waits to see what transpires over those 48 hours for all the truth to come out. And then he can go, okay, now let me look at it. It's, it's not based on the, the Twitter mob, you know, in the first 12 hours of something that is not based in truth. I love how cartoons sometimes it's like, you know, everything I learned about life, I learned in kindergarten, you know, everything I learned from life, I learned from Dilbert. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Well, it's been, I've got a, I'm laughing because I forgot my notebook in my room. And so, you know how they say like taking notes on the back of an envelope? Well, I've taken notes on the front and the back and I'm going to have to like figure Frame that it. out. Yeah. I'm going to have to figure that out later. Um, <laughs> it's so good to, to, to speak with you guys. Thank you so much for, I mean, it, it, you, you guys blew my mind over and over again. I'm just going to repeat some of the, the, the favorite things that I heard. Use your shortcomings as a ladder, not a crutch. Love that. And then I love the idea. I'm sorry, I'm flipping back and forth from my, which side of the envelope did I write this on? And dignity, Jason, for you, dignity dissolves power and ego and crushes the narrative. And so I think what you're doing in the world is just, I mean, it's kind of mind blowing. Oh, well, (laughs) you know, I'm just trying to, do something different and do something productive. Uh, I got tired of using ineffective tools that were purpose for destruction. And I know there's a lot of other people out there as well that are ready to begin building up and doing something different. So I want us, you know, as an organization uh, to be able to provide that to people. And to start that trust again. And I think that, um, yeah, where, and, and that trust starts with people who aren't afraid and don't, you know, back down where people go, oh, I can rely on that person where they're not, you know, one day saying this thing and the next day apologizing for it, which is very common in our. I mean, part of what I do, you know, in my, as an independent contractor, I not only teach people mindfulness practices and emotional distress tolerance and how to get a good night's sleep, right? Like that's some of what I do, but I also do diversity education. I can go into a space and I can talk about diversity, but I talk about it in a way that's different from I'm, I'm, when I go into a, a boardroom or a conference room or on Zoom to do diversity education, I do it as an educator, not an activist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I find out like, what are the issues that are going on here? I want to see what's your, I go on the web and I, what's your mission statement? What's your vision statement? What do you primarily do here? What do you call your employees? I want to, I want to build rapport with them and I want to find a way to, to, find out, you know, what do they love about what they're doing? And it's it's called appreciative inquiry. It's a particular consulting model where you find out like, what do people appreciate about their company? What do people enjoy about their job? And you, and you find out about that. And then you, 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 um, you work towards cultivating more of that. You don't focus on the negative. You focus on the positive. Appreciative inquiry. Appreciative inquiry. Okay. Yeah. So that I do my educating around diversity from an appreciative lens rather than a critical lens. Right. Because I, everyone, I think, loves diversity. It's, diversity isn't the problem. It's the way we're teaching around diversity. That's the problem. Well, and yeah. what we what we value. Right. This version of diversity values the uh, skin color, mm-hmm. the way the way that you love, and whatever uh, other biological gifts that that God gave you. Mm-hmm. Like that's what we're that's what divert. It's not about what we think, what we believe, what our skill set is. You know, diversity of skill set. Uh, diversity of competent, you know, like all of the diversity of character, character strengths, pull from pull from everybody. It's not that. It's about just those inherent traits that we're we're born with. Or if I can say, oh, I'm tired of being treated like the oppressor, so I'm going to now go find one of these other groups. At least find another group as my as my day job and come home and just be a normal. Just be, just be old regular old Jason. (laughs) We like old. We like regular old Jason. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think there's just something to say about, you know, what, what somebody right. It's like I think wasn't it in the movie The Secret? Remember that? Remember that book in that movie The Secret? Do you remember that <clears throat> from maybe the early '90s? And they were talking about, um, you know, when they talk about uh, brain plasticity, and it's like this idea of if you focus on something, right, it becomes real, right? You can you can imagine you can imagine an atrocity and your brain sends chemicals and signals to your body as if that thing is really happening. And so I think that that's what's, I think that that's what's happened is people have been convinced that they're living in some sort of like cultural Armageddon and that they need to like, you know, tool up uh, without guns, of course, because guns are bad, but they need to, they need to tool up with their words to fight the oppressor. Um, and it's like, the, it's as if they're on guard and looking for it at every turn. How are you supposed to live a life if you are, are watching and waiting like you're on the watchtower waiting for the enemy to approach at any minute? Like that, that I mean, that's what people with post-traumatic stress, mm-hmm. that's how they live. And we, mm-hmm. we call that a condition that needs to be treated mm-hmm. and perhaps medicated. Um, so it's, it's almost as if we have a, like a societal post-traumatic stress from people telling other people, you know, bad things are happening to you. You just need to open your eyes to see Mm -hmm. it. The microaggressions, you know. 
You know, I, it's so funny that you said that because Jason and I have spoken about this before. When people use, people throw around the term post-traumatic stress disorder around these emotional things. And some of it, some of it's valid. I don't want to discount where it's not. But at you as well, Xander, as someone who's uh, you know former military, my family's former military, you know, my, my husband's in um, law enforcement. And that's a real, like, that's a real thing. It's a real, and yeah. so we've co-opted that term to, that moves from a true battlefield to a, you know, an emotional battlefield. And I think a lot of it is because of what we keep telling ourselves, like you said. So, I mean, it's become a real thing, but it kind of frustrates me sometimes the way that we use that as it's just like, uh, as, as, as a cold, as if you have a cold, I have post-traumatic stress syndrome. I got a cold today. Well, it's, it's a interesting thing that a person who has been in combat or experience military sexual trauma or non-military sexual trauma like rape, they have, they can have, not all, but they can have post-traumatic stress mm -hmm. or post-traumatic stress disorder, some people call it. But I know people who get misgendered and they say they have post-traumatic right. stress disorder. So right. it's like, I mean, maybe, but then there needs to be um, a spectrum you know, mm -hmm. of differentiating between post-traumatic stress from combat mm -hmm. and sexual assault versus somebody calling you the wrong pronoun. Yeah. Yeah. I, I There's no equivalency there in my mind. Right. It's almost like it's a way to claim victimhood status. Like if you can call PTSD and whatever you can cling to it, you're ascending into some sort of power by claiming victimhood. So, I mean, I get it, right? If if a person is saying, right, from the trans perspective, if a person is saying misgendering me impacts my ability to feel like I belong, right? An accepted member of society. So I get it. But it's that elevation of now I'm gonna try now I might kill myself as a result of it. Like it just es escalates. Um, and I think there should be interventions rather than holding individuals up as like, see, here's evidence of how bad it is. I mm -hmm. think we just need to, we need to employ intervention strategies to teach people how to navigate through that distress of people misgendering you. I know what that feels like. It's happened to me. I went through it as a non-binary, as an androgynous female for like 25 years. I got called sir all the time. I found it really uh, just unsettling, but it didn't, it didn't escalate to a certain point. It's like, maybe it can't be because my earlier life was like, you know, silver spoon. I was in a group home for God's sake. That tells you something about my earlier life. So there's gotta be, there's gotta be something that we can do to intervene, to provide people with the skills, the mindfulness skills, the, the, um, the, the challenging, the negative thoughts so that people can can um, when we talk about self-care and self-advocacy and self-efficacy, these are things that we can teach people. They're not innate. We can mm -hmm. teach these things. This is part of social emotional learning, which is what we're doing at Empower ED Pathways. Yep, and and teaching that resiliency. Yes, it's all part of it. Yep. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Cheers to both of you. Cheers to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. 
different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say, hold my drink and the conversation gets real.